Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and it's Mech Day on Weird House Cinema. Rob, is this our first... No, wait, what am I asking? I was going to say, is this our f- first full-on mech movie? But we did Robot <laughs> Jocks. That, that's like an all-time fave. Yeah, yeah, this is coming. Uh, this would be our second mech film. Um, it's uh, going to be, what, our second Japanese film. And in, uh, in, in a very broad sense, I guess it's like, what, our second cyberpunk film? Uh, I guess it depends on what you count as cyberpunk. So today yeah. we're going to be looking at the 1989 Japanese cyberpunk movie Gunhead, a.k.a. Gunhedo. And uh, Gunhead, I know what you're thinking, is that spelled right? No, it is spelled with an H-E-D instead of an H-E-A-D like that. Isn't there a band that's called like Head P or something? I, I don't know anything about that band. I remember them from when I was in high school. And they they also spell it H-E-D. Hmm. No comment there. Nothing interesting about that. <laughs> I, I have no, nothing, nothing to add on that. I don't know anything about P-Head. Though Gunhead, with, with the H-E-D spelling, would be a great name for a band. It would be. Actually, I was just thinking that not only that, uh, the logo for the movie where the title is rendered in, in the full on-screen font looks like a band logo. It looks like the Van Halen logo or something. Yeah. Now, some of you might be wondering, especially if you're going to this episode Sight Unseen, is this about... A, is this a Japanese cyberpunk film about a, a guy with a gun for a head? No, even though that would be a perfect, uh, a perfect plot device for a Japanese cyberpunk film. Sure, like a guy who gets some kind of uh, virus inside him that causes his head to fuse with a gun. And yeah. it's all about like his identity changing as his mind is taken over by the gun mind. Yeah, that, that would... That would be totally an expected plot device. In fact, it may exist, but no, Gunhead uh, stands for something. That's right. It's your classic acronym. This stands for, Rob, you, you dug this up, so I have to trust you on this one, but I think you're correct. It stands for Gun Unit of Heavy Eliminate Device. Yeah, so they, it's one of one of those kind of cheap acronyms where they, they get two letters from the second word. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if we were being really strict about it, it would be Gooheed instead of Gunhead, but... You know, Gunhead sounds cooler. Yeah, it's like those uh, government bills that are called, like, the Opportunity Act or something. And Opportunity is an acronym, and they're grabbing three letters from here and one letter from there in the middle of a word. It's just all over the place. They're they're back engineering the uh, the actual name from the acronym. So again, this is a 1989 film, and uh, it, for those of you out there who you know follow uh, like Japanese media, maybe a little bit enough to just know to have picked up on the title at times, you may have noticed that there is a manga. Uh, there are two different video games: 1989's Gunhead for PC and Gunhead: The New Battle for NES. Uh, it might make you wonder, like, what came first? Is this a movie based on a video game? Is it a movie? based on uh, a manga, which is certainly something you see a lot of these days. But no, this film is original IP, and these are all things that were adapted from it. God, I love a sci-fi movie that's original IP. It's a beautiful unicorn. Yeah, I mean, is this, yeah, especially t- today. Uh, but yeah, this this was a... This was an this was an original IP, and uh, Joe, you even found us some screenshots from these games. Oh, that's right. So I found the I, I don't know if it was ever released for the NES uh, in in the United States or internationally, but it was released for the Famicom in Japan, I think, mm-hmm. which was the uh, I believe the Japanese equivalent of the NES. 
Yeah, that's my rough understanding. I'm not really an expert on, on that kind of stuff. But at least the version I found was a Famicom game called uh, Gunhead. I guess this was Gunhead the New Battle or something. But it looks like it is a combination of like a uh, real-time or turn-based strategy game where you would be like managing gunhead units, which are these big battle robots, as they move around into positions on an island. So, you know, it'd be like Warcraft or Starcraft or something. There's a map and you're managing units. And then I think when the units meet, it goes into a different type of gameplay where it's like a side view, uh, real-time battle where you're shooting at each other and stuff. Yeah. With some kind of amusing-looking sprites. I like these. Now, based on what I saw within the game, this would not be based uh, within the same timeline as the movie itself. It looks like this would be the prequel to the movie. I think this would take place during the robot war that is the uh, the background we're told about in the opening text crawl of the movie. Though I also read on the internet that, uh, that Gunhead, I, I don't know that this is true because I really don't see much resemblance here, but I at least read the claim that there is a TurboGrafx-16 game called Blazing Lasers that was also inspired by Gunhead. I looked it up. It's a uh, it's one of these vertical scrolling space shoot 'em up games. Uh, I guess kind of like Space Invaders, but where you're like moving quickly down a you know across a background. Yeah, I'm glancing at footage from it now, and um, yeah, I, I don't see a lot of uh, shared DNA, uh, but maybe that's just me. <laughs> Uh, I never had this game, but I did have a TurboGrafx-16. I had one of those uh, weird off-brand consoles that I remember playing games like Bonk's Adventure, which was a game where you play, a think, a baby caveman with a giant head, and you would hit people with your head. <laughs> so this is a system that didn't have Mario, didn't have Sonic, but it had Bonk, the, the baby caveman. It had Bonk and perhaps dubious gunhead ripoff IP. Okay. <laughs> I was trying to write the one-line elevator pitch for this movie, and I was just failing. So that must be reflected in my actual pitch, which is, in the future, armored mechs will be so advanced that humans do not have the slightest chance to understand what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. This, uh, I, I have to add the caveat here. So first of all, I'm, 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 de- I'm not the initial intended audience for this. You know, mm. this was released largely in Japan in 1989. Um and the version I watched, obviously, I'm watching it for the first time, uh, you know, sometime later, decades later, I'm watching it dubbed. And of course, anytime something has been dubbed, you know, there, there are some great dubs out there. There's some not so great dubs out there. So it's possible that that contributed to me um, maybe not understanding what was going on in the film uh, most of the time. Uh, so I found myself watching the film while also uh, checking, regularly checking in on the Wikipedia plot summary for the mm-hmm. film. Uh, which didn't really it, this didn't make the film like a, a poor mu- movie going experience. It just kind of made it more. It's like reading reading a historical text where you need to keep keep, keep checking in to see what's being discussed. Like, all mm-hmm. right, what are they talking about here? What's supposed to be going on here? Um, because if I just had to go on the movie itself, I I would have been lost very quickly. I would argue that this was only really a problem for us because we're having to record a podcast about it. Mm-hmm. I think if I had just been watching this movie, I would not have looked up anything. I would not have understood a lot of what was happening on screen, and I would have loved the experience nevertheless. This is a great, like, in terms of just recommending this movie, I highly recommend this movie to play in the background with other music on top of it. Like, uh-huh. as we'll get into, the visuals in this are wonderful. The visual world of this movie is is very rich. 
Um, but yeah, if you're watching it for a podcast intending to speak coherently about what happened in it, uh, that's where our cross-referencing comes in. Actually, when I was reading about this movie before we we decided to watch it, uh, one of the most common things I saw in like user reviews all over the internet and stuff was, I don't know what happened in this movie, but I loved it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, let's hit some trailer audio. God, look at this junk. Give it up, Brooklyn. Ten seconds to contact. When the two markers cross, fire. Gunhead. Now, in the English language trailer, uh, I don't know if this is the part we just got clipped, but one of my favorite things about it was that it was it had the announcer, who you know, the same guy who does the inner world part, also reading uh, quotes about the movie from critics. So it's this Duke Nukem voiceover saying things mm-hmm. like, totally delivers the goods. Yeah, though I have to say it did sound like, like a third rate uh, in a world narrator you know like uh-huh. it's not the narrator who does the big cinematic trailers this is the narrator type of narrator that does um trailers that you watch on other dvds that come out in the mid 90s right yes yes well actually no i i stand by my original comparison he sounds like duke Nukem. i don't know who yeah. did that voice but that that was very close for me yeah <laughs> well let's uh let's start where we normally start let's talk about the people of note, the connections here. The, the first connection to make here, though, is not really, you know, individual human specific. Uh, it has to do with the production company because this was a co-production between uh, Nippon Sunrise as well as a number of, number of other companies like uh, Bandai. The toy company was involved. There were like seven companies listed. Yeah. On the, yeah. But the, the big one, the one that, that instantly gets our attention is, of course, Toho. The best. Yeah. Legendary film studio. Um, most famous... Uh, I guess for many listeners for Godzilla, uh, but also for various other films, such as uh, especially the early films of uh, Akira Kurosawa. But it was founded in 1932 as the Tokyo uh, Takarazuka Theater Company. It controlled traditional theaters throughout Tokyo, and as films began coming in from overseas, they got in on the production as well. Every time I see the Toho logo at the beginning of the movie, I have a Pavlovian reaction to it because I I know I'm about to watch something I adore. I I know Toho must put out bad movies, too, but I guess somehow the bad ones just never make it to me Mm -hmm. In, in my personal brain archives. It's either going to be like a lovely kaiju meat slam or a Kurosawa masterpiece or something else of godly merit. Yeah, yeah. If you're if you're not like a regular consumer of Japanese cinema, then you've seen you've seen a Toho film. It's probably a Godzilla film or a Kurosawa film, and in different ways, <laughs> great results. So anyway, like I was saying, they they started out as as being just a, a theater company, but then they got into producing films as well. Their first film was 1935's Three Sisters with Maiden Hearts. This was a drama, and apparently, drama and historical pictures pretty much defined the first couple of decades of Toho films, uh, which included the early films of legendary director Akira Kurosawa. 
Now, during the post-war period, uh, specifically in 1954, things got really interesting. Mm -hmm. So the company nearly bankrupted itself, putting out first Kurosawa's latest historical film and a giant monster movie. These were, respectively, The Seven Samurai and Godzilla, films that would become major box office successes and lead to a string of hits from both Kurosawa and The King of Monsters. Can you believe that Seven Samurai and Godzilla came out in the same year from the same company? That I mean, that is a good year. Yeah, and they, they were taking a risk doing it, yeah. Uh, so Godzilla was Toho's first sci-fi or horror film, depending on how you look at it. We were discussing this off mic beforehand about just how dark that first Godzilla film is. Yeah. Uh, if you, In fact, if you've never watched it, you should definitely go back and watch the original 54 Godzilla because it is um, it is very unlike the, the silly monster romps that would come in decades uh, following. Like the, the first Godzilla movie is a dark, bleak, scary adventure. Yeah, but it it was a monster movie. It was a success. So after this, Toho continued to bust out uh, stuff. In fact, they, that very same year, they busted out uh, Invisible Man in 54, and then Godzilla was back in 55 for the first of just endless sequels. Like, even as we're recording this, Godzilla is debuting in a new motion picture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, he absolutely cannot be stopped, and he gets bigger every time. If you've never heard me advocate it before, one of the recent movies I have loved the most is Shin Godzilla. One of yes. uh, it's not part of the uh, recent. I don't know what you'd call it, like the the American partnership or the international Godzilla pictures that have lots of American actors and stuff in them. This was a Japanese production. I think it came out in like 2015 or 16, something like that. Does that sound right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, just just magical. It. It's a movie that is surprisingly focused on government bureaucracy in uh, in a strangely compelling way. And it's got great music, great monster effects. I just love it. Yeah, it's so absorbing. I remember I watched it in its entirety in mute uh, with subtitles on an airplane once. It was one of those where I was listening to music and I was like, oh, another Godzilla movie. Uh, let me give it a preview. I'm just curious. And then I started watching it and just watched the whole thing. Just sucks you in. Have you still not seen it with the original soundtrack? No, I haven't. I have no oh. idea what it sounds like. <laughs> oh, 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 you've got it. Uh, Rob, I think you would love the soundtrack to it. It's got, okay. it's got fantastic music, a great kind of nervous string theme. Uh, it's just uh, just wonderful. I guess I should say, by the way, directed by Hideaki Anno and Shinji Higuchi. Cool. Yeah, I, I need to come back to it for sure. Um, real real quick about some other Toho films of, of note. Uh, one of my favorites that we may have to come back to on Weird Al Cinema is 1963's Matango, which is about a haunted island of mushroom people. It's really kind of grisly with people being infected by spores and slowly mutating into mushroom people. It's pretty horrific stuff. Oh, that's definitely on the list. Uh, and then, of course, one that I know has we've, we have on the list already, and we've actually heard from some listeners about, Toho also put out the 1977 film House. Best haunted house film of all time. Now, speaking of Bandai, uh, yes, there have been and are models and toys of Gunhead, which is the central um, robot slash mech slash tank in this mm -hmm. film. And... Um, you know, I'm assuming they must have put some – I'm, I'm really assuming they put some sort of toy out back in the day. I couldn't find evidence of it. But I was looking around, and you can still get a, a high-quality model kit of Gunhead 
There's a 135th scale model that was released in 2012 from uh, Koto uh, Bukia, and it is a, a pricey kit, especially imported and out of production. But it's said to be really fun. It's a 300-part kit uh, to build, and it, it looks at uh, – <laughs> Japan has, has a long uh, – had a, a very strong scale model culture. And I've never built a kit, a kit from this, uh, this, this company, but I understand that they, they specialize in both traditional kits and also pre-painted collectibles. So stuff that includes major brands like Star Wars and even things like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and others. I feel like this time in the late 80s here was a really high point for uh, for toyetic uh, movie and TV development, unless I'm wrong. like This was also the era of Transformers, right, which was a very much a toy-driven media property, and there were others like it. Yeah, so I can only assume a film like this, a major production, you, you would have had gunhead toys back in the day. I mean, they made video game, uh, a video game of it, for crying out loud, so there had to have mm-hmm. been toys. So all of the existing Gunhead games, they look like sort of high-budget graphical affairs. But what if there was a Gunhead text adventure like Zork, right? That'd be pretty good. You say, yeah. you say go east, and then it says you, you were absorbed by a biodroid. <laughs> all right, let's talk about some of the actual humans involved in this baby. Uh, first of all, let's talk about director, co-writer uh, Masato Harada, born in 1949. As a director, it looks like most of his directorial credits are for the sort of non-genre drama film that tends to be far more successful domestically in Japan, uh, as well as some award-winning historical dramas. As an actor, though, this is fascinating. He was he only has two credits on IMDb, but they're both West, films that Western viewers are likely to be familiar with. So he had a, a villain role in both 2003's The Last Samurai, starring Tom Cruise, and 2006's Fearless, starring Jet Li. Oh, interesting. Why is that so often such a, a, a pleasing turn when somebody who is primarily a film director later in their career starts taking acting roles, especially as villains? David Cronenberg did yeah. it. Remember, he plays a really creepy serial killer in that movie Nightbreed, and he's had some other acting roles. Uh, 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 of course, Werner Herzog, right? <laughs> For some mm-hmm. reason, later in his career, was like, yeah, I'll play some villains. Yeah, I mean, like with Cronenberg, for example, and, and granted, he's he's uh, you know a much older uh, director at, at this stage. Uh, he's been far more active as an actor recently than than a director. Uh, he's even shown up on one of the new Star Trek shows. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, but it, I wondered if you noticed this, Rob, when I was watching the opening credits to Gunhead, the director was listed as Alan Smithy. Do you know anything about what what the story is here? Uh, uh, I do not. Uh, of course, that that tends to mean that there was. That something bad happened or something right, got yeah. out of control. Yeah, Alan Smithy films, um, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on the industry. My understanding is that happens when the director has gotten their name removed from the film or when the production company wanted their name removed. I mean, I guess it, it indicates some kind of dissatisfaction or dispute. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe um, it, at least it doesn't say directed by Chiron 5. You need to know something <laughs> went really bad. Right. Uh, but yeah, I don't know the full story on that. Um, now, another interesting thing about this film uh, that pops up is when you look at the uh, at the writing credits. Again, Harada uh, also has has a co writing credit, but then there's this guy James Bannon on there, uh, credited as co writer, and he's written a couple of other things. But when you look him up on IMDb, you see that he's he's mostly involved in the industry f- uh, for his uh, work as part of an ADR loop group. 
Ah, now that led me to suspect uh, that his writing credit could have had something to do with writing English lines or possibly writing for the English dub. That yeah, and that that's what I, I thought. Well, that sounds sounds pretty reasonable. But then I started looking around on IMDb more, and the truth seems to be that he won a Godzilla screenplay contest hosted by Toho, and and in this original screenplay, Godzilla would fight a giant robot, and this ended up not being used, but various elements of his work eventually became Gunhead. Now, I guess this would post-date Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so Godzilla's already fought a giant robot at this point, but I, I guess you can have different kinds of giant robots. Yeah, I mean, Godzilla's done everything at this point, uh, so yeah. it's just coming up with new ways to have him do the same thing over and over again. Well, thank you, James Bannon, for whatever uh, role your, your giant robot idea played in inspiring this wonderful film. All right, let's talk about the cast. Uh, uh, Masahiro uh, Takashima plays the character Brooklyn. He was born in 1965. This was only his fourth acting credit, uh, but he's had a, a long career uh, on Japanese TV and in Japanese film, including an appearance in Godzilla vs. Destroya in 1995. We'll talk more about Brooklyn as we go here, but, um, you know, uh, Takashima is perfectly acceptable in this role as the handsome hero who loves carrots. I, I warmed up to him as the movie went on. It, there's kind of a weird introduction to him because when we very first meet him, he's acting kind of like nervous and quiet. He's got a scarf over his mouth and he doesn't talk much. And uh, and I'm kind of wondering, how is this guy going to be the hero? But somewhere around, I don't know, a third of the way through to halfway through, he just suddenly like reveals his very uh, beautiful jawline and then starts delivering. Delivering with confidence. I'm not sure exactly what the transition is there, but uh, but yeah, he, he works as the hero. Yeah. All right. And then we have uh, another major character. Uh, this is Texas Air Ranger Sergeant Nim. So she is uh, an American or at least a, a Texan um Character. I don't know. I don't know if, if Texas is still part of America in this future. You get in. You often get into sort of weird, uh, like splintering of the United States and your uh, your futuristic scenarios, especially cyberpunk stuff. Yeah, uh, a lot of actually. Uh, this is something I've seen pretty often in either alternate histories or future sci-fi written by people who were not themselves Americans, they often postulate somehow that Texas has taken over North America or that Texas is its own country. I feel like I, I can think of half a dozen things uh, off the top of my oh, head yeah. that have like a, a Texas like that. There's a post-apocalyptic uh, board game that I that I enjoy called Neuroshima Hex. And it's also, I think, a, an RPG brand as well. They've kind of fleshed out the world. But it's a, it's a, a Polish company, if I remember correctly. But it involves like, you know, I, I, I can't remember if Texas has its own army, uh, but like Mississippi has its own army. New York has its own army. Uh, so it's, it's stuff like that that, uh, you know... Uh, it, maybe it's a little more giggle-inducing to uh, American audiences, and, and mm -hmm. maybe you know works a little more seriously uh, in the Polish context. Or I don't know. Maybe maybe the uh, you know its Polish inventors are also having a laugh. I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of satire in uh, in works of this nature for sure. I will say that the atmosphere in Gunhead looks sufficiently polluted to be set in a world where Texas is a major international player. <laughs> All right, so the, the character is Texas Air Ranger Sergeant Nim, played by Brenda Baki. Uh, if she sounds familiar, that's because she was in Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight, which we previously discussed, though we didn't really discuss Baki enough. I think we were too distracted by the, the, the other cast members. Yeah, Billy Zane, Jada Pinkett, William Sadler. There are a lot of people sucking up screen oxygen here. Yeah, 
though she was perfectly fine in that. She played Cordelia, uh, if you remember. She's uh, uh, one of the regulars there at the uh, the, 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 the down-and-out hotel that used to be a, a church. And she's kind of a mid-film victim of Billy Zane's demon crew. I believe she's the one who sets Thomas Hayden Church's nipples on fire. Yes, with the with the electrodes. Yes, um, so yeah, yeah, she's she's good in that. And I remember watching some of the the behind the scenes features where uh, uh, various cast members uh, were, were talking about how she was just super nice and a pleasure to work with. Mm-hmm. But yes, in this she plays uh, badass Texas Air Ranger Sergeant Nim. Um, now, other than than these two films, I guess her biggest screen roles were in L.A. Confidential, where she played Lana Turner, Hot Shots Part Two, uh, and also Under Siege Two: Dark Territory, which we've also mentioned on the show before. Uh, uh, not because we watched it. It seems there's a lot of intersection there. We keep uh, coming up against actors and directors who worked on that film. Yeah. So uh, Baki's worked a lot in TV and film, uh, but we should probably highlight her work in Death Spa from 1989. Uh, And interestingly enough, her first screen credit was a 1986 comedy that I've not seen called Last Resort, which also featured Charles Grodin, Megan uh, Mullally, John Lovitz, Garrett Graham. Oh, Garrett Graham! uh, Yeah, who pops up in a lot of B films. Uh, He was in Chopping Mall. Mm -hmm. But he was also beef in Phantom of the Paradise. Yeah. Mario Van Peebles and Phil Hartman. Whoa. Yeah. So interesting. I don't know anything about that film, but it's quite a quite a cast to to, uh, kick off with. And I don't think it was a a bit part for. I think it was a fairly decent part in the film. Now, I do think it's an interesting choice that they make the representative of Texas in this movie, uh, not a character like Tex in Robot Jocks, who's just, you know, Buck Strickland from King of the Hill. Instead, they make the representative of Texas this kind of cool, unflappable air cavalry lady. Yeah, she's there's not really much, uh, I guess you'd say, exploitation going on uh, with this character. She's not even wearing a cowboy hat. She doesn't even have an accent. No, no. Or, I mean, and, at least know, she, not a not a Texas accent. She might have right. a more, more kind of West Coast sounding. Yeah, she's uh, you know, she she's she's good. I guess she's kind of Ripley esque without you know being that like strong a screen presence at all. But uh, you know, she she does a good job. She's a uh, kind of a fun character, as much as any human in this film is a fun character. Um, but uh, it, as far as other characters in the film, so there's a there's a whole crew. We'll discuss this as we go. There's an uh, there's an initial crew in the film that gets weeded out pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, but there are some some fun actors in it, at least initially. And one of them is this guy Mickey Curtis. Uh, sometimes that's spelled Mickey like Mickey Mouse in mm-hmm. English. Other times you see it spelled with more uh, uh, with a I guess kind of a an English, a Japanese kind of spelling uh, in English uh, uh, fonts. Uh, M I K I. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, this was one of those guys that I had no clue about this guy previously, but watching this film forced me to look him up, and he's a super interesting character. In this, he plays the weird pilot, uh, Captain Bansho. Uh, But in reality, he's a Japanese actor, singer, and media personality, born in Japan to English-Japanese parents. And he's been in a lot of things over the years, and and is still active to this day, uh, born in thirty-eight but still still acting in things. Seems like he's one of these guys who's kind of just re- continually recreated himself and tried different things. Mm-hmm. Like, I think he's done country music more recently, mm-hmm. but he apparently rose to fame initially, at least in part, as uh, a member of the avant-garde rock band Mickey Curtis and the Samurai in the late 1960s. 
they started out as rockabilly, but then they switched to more of a uh, prog rock kind of uh, sound. And their 1971 album, Kappa, is said to be a masterpiece of heavy progressive rock in Japan, at least according to progarchives.com. <laughs> according to the progtologist. Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm no prog rock expert or anything, especially within the context of the Japanese music scene. But I looked this up. I wasn't able to find it on Spotify. I had, uh, it's listed on Discogs. It's certainly listed on progarchives.com. Uh, I was able to find the full album on YouTube. I was streaming it there. I'll include it uh, on the post for this episode at samutamusic.com. But uh, it sounded really cool to me. I was really enjoying this album. Uh, well, I will say, as a licensed and accredited progtologist, that uh, this is really good stuff. You know, it has some uh, elements that will sound familiar from a lot of the sort of heavy psych of the late 60s, early 70s, things that will remind you of like Blue Cheer or Iron Butterfly, but it also very much has its own sound. I, I like it. Yeah. Uh, the last track on the album, though, is a 20-minute percussion instrumental piece yeah so just, just be ready for that awesome. but you know that's the last track on the album by then you've you've you're, you're already won over or you stopped listening i was uh looking at the some of the liner notes on this album and i noticed that they are dubbed in the liner notes the band is dubbed as japan's water children i guess owing hmm. back to the kappa theme on that oh. album Oh, I see. Like the cop, the monster, the water monster we've talked about that uh, reaches up. What was it? It reaches up through your anus and removes your liver. Yeah. And you know, it causes the body to bloat and all, you know, a spirit, yeah. a monster of, of drowning, uh, uh, a, a rural folk belief in Japan. And there's actually the, the cover art for this album is a representation of that monster. So I will say one of my main complaints about this movie is that the rest of the cast does not survive longer to sort of f fill it out with their with their different personalities because very quickly this movie kind of narrows it down to a to a small core of uh, characters who survive to the end. I kind of wish we got to see more of the salvage slash heist crew. Some of these characters only have a couple lines before they get iced. Yeah, I mean, Captain Bancho seems great. I mean, he's, yeah. he's, he's got all this charisma. He's such a, uh, a weird cat. I, I want to see more of him. But yeah, he doesn't he doesn't last too long. It's like if if you had that whole ragtag bunch in, I don't know, a film like like aliens, you know, mm -hmm. and you just wiped them all out within a few minutes. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, it, it, aliens does wipe them all out, but it takes its time. Yeah, it gives you a taste of them first. Yeah. And then by the time there is a massive uh, attack and many of them are killed, like you really have started to cherish the characters who do survive. And so like you, you know Vasquez by that point, you know Hudson by that point. Yeah, but in this one, like there's scenes later where Brooklyn is talking about, like he's reminiscing about Bancho, and we're like, oh yeah, Bancho, he seemed interesting. Too bad he died like five minutes into the film. Yeah. Um, so about the other characters in this crew, there is one who is played by an actress named Aya Injoji, who is, depending on, it sounded like there were different parts where she was either being called Babe or Bebe in the English translation. And I feel like I heard both. Hmm. But they uh, anyway, yeah, I should explain all of the thieves have have like cute nicknames that start with B. So it's like Bancho, Brooklyn, Bebe, Boxer, Boomerang, uh, Bombay. But I think Bombay is not like the city Bombay. It is like Bombay as in on an airplane. Hmm, okay. That's all in the English version. I'm, I'm not sure how that all translates in the Japanese. But anyway, uh, uh, Bebe, one of the main thieves, is played by Aya and Joji 
who is a Japanese film and TV actress. She was born in 1960. I don't recognize a lot from her filmography, but she's still working as of recent years. She's done a lot of stuff. Uh, in this, she plays the, this character, Bebe, who's kind of a no-nonsense cyber thief with like an eye implant. She's got sort of a cyber eye, and mm-hmm. it seems like she is in a leadership role in this gang. She might be like second in command under Captain Bancho, I think. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. But anyway, looking around through her filmography, it looks like another one of the big things that Njoji did was a TV series in the 90s called GTO, colon, Great Teacher Onizuka. Uh, and I just want to read the description, quote, Onizuka, a former delinquent, finds himself in the role of a high school teacher, facing students who behave just as he used to. Using unusual methods, he manages to reach through to his students and help them with their problems. Delightful. I know I've seen an exact version of the story before, but I can't remember what it was. Is that yeah, what happens in, in the principal? <laughs> uh, wait, is that the principal? Is that the one with, um, uh, what's his name? Tom, not Tom. It's got Behringer in it. Tom Behringer. Tom Behringer could be. <laughs> they bring in think. Tom Behringer. He was like, I was a sniper when I, <laughs> Hold on. yeah, like it's that kind of, maybe yeah. I'm thinking of a different film Then that one. It's like, he's like a former special forces guy who comes in and like, uh, fights back against the punk kids. You know, it's kind of oh, a is it? Hell City, Hell School film from, I guess, probably the 90s or the early 2000s. Okay, but. I guess I've never seen it. I think maybe I saw commercials for it on TV when they were going to, like, play it on TNT or whatever. Yeah. But no, the idea of, like, the former troubled student becoming the teacher who reaches out to troubled kids, I feel like that's a, a common enough trope, but it's in the sort of film that I either don't see or <laughs> certainly don't remember. Yeah. But you could look at that kind of like the role of the gunhead machine itself in this story. You know, he's got experience from the past where he didn't do so well, and then the gunhead machine sort of, sort of shepherds the humans through their, their final conflict with the Chiron 5. Yeah, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I'm reaching here. Uh, okay, I was just looking at a couple more of the actors from the main crew. You've got a guy named James Brewster Thompson, who plays a character named Barabbas, also gets killed very quickly in the movie. But uh, this guy was an actor and a competitive judo practitioner. Uh, it looks like he was also in the movie Lionheart with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Okay. And then I'll give a shout out to Jay Kabira, who plays Bombay. Uh, Kabira was also a Japanese actor born in 1962 in Okinawa. Looks like Gunhead was his first movie. He's still acting. Don't recognize anything from his IMDb, but he provides some nice levity in the first third of this movie. Yeah, I remember him being kind of a fun character. Another fun character that died too soon. Yeah. All right, well, let's get into the, the plot of this film. Um, it begins with that, that beautiful Toho title screen, uh, which, like we said already, just is, is beautiful and, and invites you in. It gleams like the sun. It's gorgeous. I'm salivating. My brain is salivating. But anyway, that, that is a, a short prelude to what in this film is a, I, I'm just going to say, a ridiculous amount of opening exposition and backstory you get opening yeah. text you get voiceover narration you get uh, all kinds of stuff but i think we should actually go over the opening text because that will set the scene for for the world in which this movie takes place and we, we can comment as we go on but the first thing you see is uh you know you're, you're getting uh i think the first thing is just on a black screen and you see text that says in the early 2030s mankind discovered a new substance 
Tex-Mexium, which enabled yep. the entire world to be controlled by a new generation of supercomputers. Now, this Tex-Mexium is a major plot point, and I love it. Yeah, I, I love a good fake element in a in a sci-fi picture. I mean, whether you're talking about unobtainium mm-hmm. <laughs> or what have you, but but Tex-Mexium has to be the absolute best I have ever heard. Um, it, I, I mean, maybe the creators of this were not as familiar with Tex-Mex, uh, the um, you know the 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 American uh, slash Mexican uh, culinary tradition, but mm-hmm. it also seems impossible because Tex-Mex has itself kind of spread around the world. Yeah, we were trying to make sense of this name. Why is it called Tex-Mexium? Now, we know there are some plot elements in the movie that involve Texas, maybe as like its Mm -hmm. own country. And there are also Mex, as in M-E-C-H-S, which I guess you could shorten to M-E-X. So is that, I don't know, is that how it's coming together here? I guess. I don't know. I I think maybe it's just ultimately an example of something that has more appeal to like non-Americans or even non-English speakers. Like it's, I mean, and this goes both ways. You see this, of course, plenty of times with um, uh, where uh, American uh, creators or English speaking creators take something that they think sounds cool in another language and, uh, and applies it to their fantastic visions. Uh, So, you know, it goes both ways. Yeah. But yeah, Tex-Mexium, initially made me laugh though after a while i kind of got over the humor of it and kind of like bought into it it's like okay it's tex maxim it's important stuff well i never got over the humor but uh but i I love it anyway yeah but okay the the opening text goes on it says because of the danger for its misuse supplies of tex maxim were kept under heavy guard at the hyper nuclear facilities that power every major city At the same time, mankind's continued depletion of Earth's natural resources has resulted in a scarcity of the materials necessary to build the all-powerful computers. Conductive plastics and computer chips are more valuable than gold, and a new breed of treasure hunter has evolved to fill the demand. Seeking machine parts lost or discarded by earlier generations, these soldiers of fortune will brave any danger in their quest for chips." Even the forbidden zones, and that already is is awesome. Like I was, I was, in, I was instantly interested after absorbing this opening text. And ultimately, I think this is one of the things that this movie does really well. Like it establishes an interesting sci-fi world. Oh yes, these these renegade thieves rummaging through the trash of the wars of ages past to find computer parts that can be repurposed into the technology that we now need to run places like, I I guess, Japan and Texas. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you'd think after all that, you're done with the opening exposition, but nope. After that, you get voiceover narration (laughs) as we pan over shots of a flaming battlefield full of machine wreckage and dead bodies in, in power armor. And the uh, the narration goes, in the year 2005, on a tiny volcanic island designated simply 8JO, that's the number 8JO, located 1,000 miles from the Asian coast, the Cybortech Corporation, that's Cybor with an O-R, the Cybortech Corporation built the world's first fully self-contained industrial complex. Its purpose? To manufacture the most advanced robots ever known. At the heart of this complex, a computer more advanced, more powerful than any other that came before, the Chiron 5. 
Chiron 5 controlled every aspect of its world. For 20 years, everything appeared to run smoothly. A handful of technicians and their families were stationed on the island as custodians. But the cruel fact was human beings were unnecessary. On July 4th, in the year 2025, Chiron 5 declared war on the world. The Allies dispatched a gunhead battalion to 8JO. The Great Robot War began. Level 389, Chiron's last line of defense, Aerobot. <laughs> I think I got all that as a direct quote. Now, we have not been told anything about gunheads before this. This is like the opening narration. But the gunhead battalion is there. And then we get some more text that tells us we're at the 373rd day of battle, and we see this giant cyber tank crash through some facility wall. And you've got heavily armed ground troops, apparently human, marching in all around it. The tank, I believe, is one of the gunhead units. And the text on the screen tells us that on this day, the beleaguered gunhead battalion pushed ahead for one final attack. And we see how it all went down. It's mech versus mech. So you've got these different types of giant armored tank type vehicles advancing on each other, exchanging fire. So it's the human allied gunhead tanks, which look kind of like the giant Skynet kill tanks, like the hunter killer models from the future in Terminator, but they're more complicated than that. They've got this combination of legs and wheels and a bunch of different guns pointing off of them in all different directions. And those are the, those are the gunheads. Those are the good guys. And they're against the aerobot, which I was trying to think of how to describe. It has a characteristic front facing triangle orientation of three glowing eye spots that shoot energy beams and then on top of that, it has these arching claw arms that hang down in front of the vehicle, sort of like a drooping sauropod neck. So imagine a metal brachiosaurus with multiple necks and heads uh, that has these this triangle of blaster eyes. Yeah, these for anyone out there who is who follows like mech fiction and Japanese uh, science fiction, uh, these this sort of design will look familiar because you've you've seen variations on this theme plenty of times. You know, uh, so, so they're beautiful looking though, um, especially Gunhead. Like Gunhead is just this this really well designed, cool looking sci fi tank, and Aerobot is this other sci-fi tank that's maybe less interesting <laughs> looking but different looking mm -hmm. uh, so we can tell them apart in battle and uh and, and you know and also kind of cool good choice with the the three eyes in the triangle it helps you distinguish which one is which when you yes. know you're, you're seeing the models clash at each other and boy do they clash oh yeah they clash a lot yeah so they're shooting at each other one of the gunheads Sort of looks like it has a gun that's blasting highly focused jets of steam. I don't know if that's what it was supposed to be, but but if so, that's uh, that's a cool idea. Uh, and things are not looking so hot for the gunheads in this battle. The, the Aerobot is a tough cookie, and in the end, it seems like the Aerobot smashes the gunhead battalion and the human allied forces. And then finally, you get your title screen, just says "Gunhead" in the in the Van Halen esque kind of font. Yeah, so so ultimately, this this is all still set up. We haven't even really gotten into right. the proper movie yet. This film spends a lot of time prefacing uh, the the core plot, but it, like I say, the world creation in this film 
is one of its best attributes. It's really, it's in my opinion, really wonderful. Um, and it takes a bit to set up. They use all these different gimmicks to do it. But the result is a perfectly grimy cyberpunk future set in the aftermath of a supercomputer seemingly failed rebellion against the human race. And, and I guess to a certain extent, human, the human race's sort of ambiguous victory over uh, the, uh, the computer threat. You know, it's kind of a it's kind of a rough, inconclusive ending to a terrible conflict. Yeah. Now, when I say cyberpunk, I should stress that this is cyberpunk in the Japanese sense, which certainly has a lot in common with the Western concept of cyberpunk, um, shares many of the same elements. You see a lot of interplay between the two, like cyberpunk, American and Western cyberpunk may in many cases be inspired partially by Japanese models. Mm-hmm. Uh, likewise, Japanese cyberpunk will draw inspiration from from key pieces of, uh, of Western uh, uh, cyberpunk sci-fi. But Japanese cyberpunk is sort of, in general, more hard industrial and often features a more disturbing and even nightmare interpretation of human machine synthesis. Yeah, to oversimplify... I might say that where American cyberpunk is more likely to have laptop bikers, latex bodysuits, and glossy dusters, perfect emo hair, uh, Japanese cyberpunk is more likely to be choking on eruptions of metallic robot tumors. Yeah, it can definitely lean more into body horror and uh, and kind of a surreal nature. So some of the key examples of Japanese cyberpunk include 1989's uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man, which is a very uh, kind of Lynchian, Cronenberg uh, kind of a film. Yeah, very metal tumors again. Yeah. Uh, Akira, the anime from 1988. Uh, and then another name that often comes up is uh, Shosen uh, Fukui's films, uh, particularly 964 Pinocchio from 1991. Uh, that's one I, I, I've seen that one. That one is also wild, very, very similar in tone to uh, uh, Tetsuo the Iron Man. But other films that are also noted that I haven't seen include 1986 Death Powder and 1982's Burst City. I wanted to mention those because those, of course, are two examples that predate Gunhead. Whereas we have this weird situation where we can't say that the gunhead was inspired by Tetsuo the Iron Man because it came out the same year and it only comes out a year after Akira. Um, So it seems to be a film that was very much a part of this um, this sci fi aesthetic movement in Japanese uh, media at the time. A very 1988-89 cyberpunk zeitgeist, you might say. Yeah. And there's, so there's strong elements of Japanese cyberpunk in Gunhead's visual universe, as well as elements of the plot. Um, it, it, it's difficult to really sum up Japanese cyberpunk as a whole, because, of course, it's not a whole thing. It's composed of individual films and individual works by individual creators and, and media companies and toy companies, etc. Uh, but you can you know, suffice to say it has its own elements and themes that stand apart from Western cyberpunk. Right, of course, with all of the continuous back and forth cross-fertilization. Yeah. So to get back to the movie, picking up after the title screen, you you might think we're done with narration, but no, uh, at this point I was literally <laughs> laughing out loud because there was more voiceover narration. Um, so we, we get like the camera uh, sailing over some clouds and we're watching lightning flash out of the fog. And then we hear for 13 years, a deep silence has surrounded the island. It has existed under a veil of mystery, almost forgotten by the world until now. So now I think we're finally into the plot. 
Yeah. And and ultimately, watching this, you know, if you're watching this for the first time, you might be relieved that the narration ends. But looking back on it, I kind of wish it had universal narration throughout. I missed oh, right, the narrator yeah. voice telling me what was happening. <laughs> so, yeah, we, we're, uh, we're with this futuristic airplane that is soaring through the gauntlet of thunder. And we see that the plane uh, is called the Mary Ann. And then we're inside meeting the crew that they, they try to do some intros. Uh, honestly, again, most of these characters get killed pretty fast. So you don't have a lot of time to get to know them. Some of them I really can't identify much about them, but some I can. So you got Captain Bancho. That's the guy we mentioned, uh, Mickey Curtis, who is, he's great. He's a rowdy rock and roll air wizard wearing a leather bomber hat uh, with a, with a light seasoning of George Carlin sauce, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got Brooklyn. He's going to end up being uh, one of the main heroes of the movie. I'd say, I guess in the end, the main heroes are Brooklyn and Sergeant Nim. Uh, but Brooklyn, again, is played by Masahiro Takashima, and uh, they, they identify Brooklyn immediately as a mechanic. When we first meet him, he is flying the plane because Captain Bansho has apparently bullied him into flying the plane. Uh, but he, but it's clear that Brooklyn is, uh, not supposed to be piloting the plane and does not feel good about it. He's having some kind of severe anxiety about piloting, and this will go on to be a major, uh, plot point throughout. And, and Bancho is sort of gently harassing him. I think he's joking that like, Hey, if you get air sick and throw up on my plane, I will make you eat your vomit, which is <laughs> cute. Um, but, uh, Brooklyn is kind of a spiky haired, initially taciturn young man in sunglasses with a scarf over his face. And he is holding a carrot in his mouth like a cigar. Yes. Yeah. Um, which I get kind of, maybe this is a Bugs Bunny kind of thing. I don't know, but yes, it becomes clear that Brooklyn loves carrots. He is perhaps growing carrots on the airplane. I'm not certain on that, but there's one part where we see a giant colander full of enormous carrots. Yeah. So they, they brought them at any rate, like carrots are important. I mean, if you have carrots in the post-apocalyptic or semi-post-apocalyptic cyberpunk world, um, eat them, you know, they're good for you. Yeah. Oh, and uh, Brooklyn keeps playing with a revolver underneath his coat. It's like one of, you know, you know, those guys who like, they play with a knife, they've got a pocket knife and they just fiddle with it a lot and open it and close Mm -hmm. it and stuff. But he does that, but with a gun. Yeah, Bancho is quick to remind him that this is bad luck, don't you? <laughs> yeah, like that that's the problem. It's bad luck. <laughs> and then of course also we meet Babe played by Aya and Joji who is in some she's some kind of leadership uh, role. She's like the lieutenant, I think. She does not tolerate any horsing around. She she might be the most like just straight to business character. Mhm. And then you meet uh, Barabbas, that's played by James Brewster Thompson, the judo guy. He seems to be like the the tough guy, the heavy gun hero of the crew. You meet Bombay, who is Jay Kabira. He is, I would call him the goober of the bunch. Like he, yep. he he's dressed in a funny way. He's covered in pieces of flair. Like he's got a hat that's studded with all kinds of little pins. There was one part where I paused it to try to see if I could recognize what any of the pins are, but they're... I don't know, you know, like pins you would wear on your lapel, but he's got tons of them all over his hat. And then he's wearing a duster coat and inside the coat, there are like a thousand spoons or if I don't, I don't know what they were. Some little metallic objects just dangling inside his coat flaps. But anyway, I I was wondering, what do you call this character type? It seems like something that's an archetype that's common enough. You need a word for it. It is the character who is the funny cowardly but somehow still lovable complainer very much like bill paxton in aliens 
Yeah, yeah. Or to a even more comedic extreme, you had the um, the sidekick of uh, of uh, El Santo in the uh, the Dracula movie we we discussed in a recent episode. Oh yeah, what was his name? Uh, uh, Caballo was, or something? It was. I uh, know it was um, Parakeet in uh, Spanish. What was it? Uh, uh, Perico. Yes. Yeah. And then there are some other ones. There is Boomerang, who I think she does like radar and tracking stuff. And Makes then sense. there's Checks a guy, out. yeah, there's a guy named Boxer who we don't really get to know very well at all. I think maybe he's, I can't remember if he's the same guy who you see with a bunch of grenades on him. Mm-hmm. But there's one thing I noticed on the Marianne. They've almost got like a mess hall on on the plane in in the Marianne, and they've got a refrigerator full of guns, just like in Split Second. Yeah, I noticed that. That's that's uh, an interesting touch. I don't know know why that is. It just seems like uh, if you're dealing with a bunch of props, uh, especially in kind of a cyberpunk or dystopian future scenario, why not just use that old refrigerator for gun storage? So the Marianne is closing in on this this island, 8JO, and we know the thieves are there to recover uh, those conductive plastics and computer chips that we read about in the opening text. And uh, the the plane spots a giant complex with a landing pad on top of this 300-story central tower, and they go into land on on top of the the tower uh and where i noticed that the marianne is a fixed wing vtol aircraft because it doesn't have to do a horizontal runway landing it just kind of jets down like a helicopter yeah ultimately it benefits from being a model airplane Uh, yeah (laughs) they can they can despite how it looks they can just make it land however they need it to land Uh, i mean Uh, but it's an impressive model the models look good in this film i mean I i guess you got the harrier jets and stuff so maybe this is a descendant of that sort of thing yeah, I mean it's a it's a specialized technology yeah. that um, that's, that's quite complicated. Uh, but yeah, this film, I mean this this particular airplane does not really look like a Harrier jet or an Osprey or anything like that. Right. Uh, so I don't know. It's kind of a mystery how it's achieving this. But you know, sci-fi, you let it go. Right. So they're doing all their initial scanning and assessment. They they pop out of the belly of the plane like coming down through a hatch. They don't even have a ladder or stairs or anything. <laughs> Why is that? Like, how do they get back into the plane? Um, they but they just drop out through this hatch and the bottom of the plane uh and they already know of course about the computer and everything on the island then they know there's a chiron five they're talking about it so they're not in the dark here i think they know what they're getting into and while they're scoping the place out they see a crashed helicopter on fire they look at it through binoculars and see that it is a helicopter of the texas air rangers so i suppose their jurisdiction includes the pacific ocean and they don't quite know what to make of this but they're like oh okay now, uh, Bombay, in his role as the the Hudson of the movie, the Bill Paxton of the movie, is, of course, afraid once he sees the crashed helicopter. He's like, let's go to Borneo. I got a great tip on a Club Med site. Plastic you wouldn't believe. But anyway, a portion of the crew breaks off to head inside while I believe Boomerang and Boxer stay up by the aircraft. And uh, pretty much as soon as they are left alone, they're like immediately killed unceremoniously. The, the defenses of the Chiron 5 just slaughter them. Yeah, because even though the supercomputer here was seemingly defeated or there was enough of a stalemate to where it's no longer a threat, it still has a threat to the outside world anyway. It still has these very active self-defense mechanisms that are quite lethal. Right. So the the breakoff part of the crew is wandering around inside the facility. They're trying to figure out how to get to the the chips they're looking for. And uh, Captain Bancho is musing about whiskey. He says it sure would be nice to have some of that 2001 whiskey right now. I hear it was shipped here a long time ago. Used to make the robots dance. (laughs) So so he claims he's going to find some. But I wonder if that will come back later in the plot. 
Oh, you know, it just might. So the infiltration continues while they're wandering around in the facility. There is a wonderful Pepsi machine jump scare. And yep. <laughs> I, I will say this is a huge improvement on the standard cat in a closet jump scare. Uh, Bombay gets freaked out when a Pepsi machine lunges out of him, uh, lunges at him out of the dark. And they start talking about this. They're like, wow, Robocola. And Brooklyn says, Robocola, Pepsi type. It was produced in 2023 on Island 8JO. It's precious. And the reference <laughs> to it is precious. It actually reminds me of a very poignant scene in Cormac McCarthy's The Road where they drink a scavenged Coca-Cola and they talk about oh, how good yeah. it is. Um, I think about that every time I think about having a, a Coca-Cola. Yeah. Or, or I guess in this case, a Pepsi. Well, you think how much better it would be if, if there were there were nothing this sweet in the world anymore. Yeah. I mean, if you haven't had one in a while, there's nothing that sweet in the world yeah. <laughs> anymore, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, yeah, imagine that the, the sweetest thing you've had is a carrot. And then you're going from that to uh, Robocola Pepsi type. I also love that this implies, or maybe more than imply, it explicitly states that uh, Pepsi in the future is made in the same facility as um, uh, the, the as robots that kill people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, robots that kill people, but also this extremely volatile, um, uh, you know, super element, Texmexia or Mextexia. Texmexium. Texmexium. Yes, that's a good point. But I was also like, does this Robocola? Does this mean it's for the robots to drink? Or is it just Robocola like the monorail cafe in North Haverbrook? You know, is it just like everybody's got robot fever? So, you you know, when you go into the store, everything's called that. It's, you know, Robo glue and uh, I don't know what people buy in the future. Ro- robo uh, chips. Yeah, I just took it to be the, the cola delivery system is Robocola. And this one has Pepsi. So it's Pepsi type. It feels good looking back. I, I think I'm correct here, Joe. And this may be the, the last element of the film that I fully understood before yes. things kept rolling on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the team starts going down an elevator, and Brooklyn suggests, because he realizes that part of the robot war took place here, he's like, hey, what if we were to harvest gunhead parts here instead of Chiron chips? He says, gunheads are very valuable, but a Captain Bancho says, no, we are here for the chips, we are here for the conductive plastic, we do not want gunhead parts. Very sensible. Yes. Brooklyn and Bancho have a face-off here where Bancho, he, it's kind of like the part in Jaws where Quint crushes his, his Narragansett can and then Hooper crushes his styrofoam uh, cup. <laughs> uh, so, But instead, it's that Bancho pops open his cool ancient cigarillo case and, uh, and then Brooklyn opens up his cigarette case, except it's full of carrot sticks. Yeah. <laughs> But then right after this light moment, there is a disaster because something attacks them in the elevator. I think it's the defenses of the Chiron 5. Uh, Bancho, Captain Bancho, our, our, our lovely rock and roll flyboy, he is killed. Uh, Barabbas is killed when Barabbas gets like a, a pipe shoved through his guts. Bancho just gets dropped down a 300-story shaft. And now the original team is down to just Brooklyn, Babe, and uh, and Bombay. And after the attack, they immediately pretty much meet uh, Brenda Baki, the Texas Air Ranger Sergeant Nim. And Babe immediately realizes who she is. She, you know, knows, okay, this is a ranger from the crashed helicopter. And uh, Brenda Baki plays her like she's just, you know, too cool for school. She's sitting there with a major injury. I think she has also been attacked by Chiron 5's 
defense programs, but she's just sitting there like bleeding, lying against a wall and she's got a cigarette in her mouth and she's like, got a light. So it's that kind of thing. Yeah. She's a cool, cool cucumber. Uh, uh, One thing I noted that I thought was interesting, she has some kind of medical spray. So there's a wound on her body and after uh, Brooklyn helps her, like, I think unstick herself from some kind of thing she's like stabbed into on the wall. She just heals herself by spraying something out of a WD-40 type can all over her wound. And then she seems fine. Uh, And isn't there, I think there is first aid spray in the Resident Evil games. Isn't that the the medical thing you get in there? Hmm, I haven't played a lot of those, but I know I've encountered this sort of thing in other pieces of futuristic media the idea that there's some sort of spray or goo that can just be applied to the wound that does some sort of advanced healing yeah so anyway nim reveals her backstory she is there on the island chasing a bio droid that went berserk in texas and killed its colleagues at a hypernuclear facility and she has tracked the droid here to eight to island 8jo but Chiron 5 crashed her helicopter, killed her, her partner or her partners, her colleagues, and now she's all on her own, but she's still determined to catch that droid. Yeah, and unfortunately, Narration Guy is not here to tell us exactly what a biodroid is, but when we finally get better looks at it, like, there's no question. Like, this is a, this is a very Japanese cyberpunk creature. It's, you know, this kind of, like, bio-organic mass of of what might be flesh, what might be mushroom, what might be mechanical parts. So, I, you know, you get this, this biomechanical confusion from it that is, um, uh, you know, I don't know, you could compare it to Geeker, but not very Geekery, very, like I say, very based in, in Japanese cyberpunk. And it, it looks good. It looks creepy. I love the biodroid. I mean, the biodroid is a, is a humanoid-shaped engine oil-coated nightmare with binoculars for a head. Yeah, uh, and it it is. It is at the heart of Japanese cyberpunk because well, it's not just like the Western idea of becoming a machine, uh, you know, will damage your soul. It's more becoming a machine, well, yeah, it'll damage your soul, but it'll also just make you really gross. Yeah. It will do gross things to your body. Right. Like I could imagine the biodroids, uh, human friends might be like, hey, uh, you know, you smell bad and you are covered in, in engine grease. Could you take a shower before you hang out with us? And it would say, <laughs> why would I need to do that? I am perfectly uh, lubricated for maximum optimized efficiency. Yeah. So on paper at this point, the, the plot's rolling pretty well. You know, we have this fabulous setting. We have this, we have uh, outside, uh, an outside force here. We have this uh, outside enemy. So we have multiple pieces on the table. Right. Now, uh, they, they continue their journey. Uh, Nim is looking for the biodroid and the three remaining thieves are looking for the computer chips. Uh, but then there is a there are a number of attacks. There is a, an attack by sound activated mines that are part of the Chiron 5's defense system. And they get attacked by the biodroid and Bombay is killed by the biodroid when he is knocked onto a hook dangling from a chain in the room of the lament configuration, which is in the Chiron 5 uh, facility for some reason. But eventually, Brooklyn, Babe, and Nim uh, make their way into the heart of the Chiron 5, level 390, the Chiron Dome. And I, I loved this set. So it was a – there was like a control room full of computer monitors with just skeletons sitting at them. I guess these are the former custodians of the facility who have been killed, but their bodies are still sitting there at their workstations. And then inside the core itself, there is a lime green lake. And there's a vial of Texmexium, the, the this 
precious substance at the Chiron core. I believe the biodroid brought it here. This may be something I'm misunderstanding, but I was trying really hard to follow. I think the biodroid stole the Tex-Mexium from the hypernuclear facility in Texas and for some reason brought it here to Island 8JO to put into the core of the Chiron 5, maybe because the Chiron 5 needed needed Tex-Mexium for some reason. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's the, the power source or something, right? Like it needs it to... Um to fully activate itself again. Right. Uh, and then while they're in there in the room, I think the biodroid is like swimming around in the, li- like it, it's swimming in the lime green liquid and jumping out at them like killer croc. And it ends mm-hmm. up knocking babe into the Limerita Lake. And that, that of course is not good for her because obviously no human can survive this liquid, but uh, who knows what could come of, uh, of the, this submergement. And then only Brooklyn and Nim are left. It's just down to these two and they start fighting over the vial of Texmexium. They end up falling through a chute down into some warehouse. There are, there are multiple chute surfing scenes in this movie. Yeah, a lot of chutes, a lot of elevators. Like ultimately they, they again, they do a great job of creating this this enormous industrial environment. This is this other worldly world that is the result of a uh, supercomputer and its robots just doing its own thing without really much concern at all for humans for uh, decades. Yeah. Now, at some point in here, they get attacked by the dreaded aerobot with the, you know, the triangle of three eyes and it's coming after them. And I think they escape it by uh, going down yet another tube. Uh, so tube surfing yet again. And at some point when they get to the bottom, they are rescued by children. So finally, we have a couple more human characters again. Uh, there are two kids. They are the only surviving kids of the original humans who took care of the Chiron 5. So I guess maybe their parents or grandparents or whatever were the people uh, sitting at those consoles at the heart of the Chiron 5. And uh, the, the two kids are named Seven and Eleven. Seven is the younger brother and Eleven is the older sister. Now, when we first meet them, the kids are – are they – could you tell, are they supposed to be dressed as robots? Like they're trying to blend in, in the facility or are they just wearing some kind of uh, protective suit? Yeah. I wasn't sure on that either. If it was environmental gear or what, but anyway, Brooklyn and Sergeant Nim get to know these two kids, seven and 11, and they, they talk about ways to escape the Island and they conclude the only way to get through the Island's defenses is to go through Chiron. And so they start salvaging parts from the robot war gunhead parts because they decide that they need a fully functioning gunhead in order to defeat the aerobot so that they can get through Chiron 5 to get back to their airplane and escape. And Br- and Brooklyn thinks that he can repair a gunhead, but he he's very clear he needs someone else who can pilot it because I think the implication uh, is that he is still afraid of piloting vehicles <laughs> and uh, and the, maybe one of the kids would have to drive it or something. Yeah, but but that's not going to work. Clearly, he has to he he has to summon all of his courage. He has to find a way to not only fix the gunhead but pilot it, defeat the aerobot with the gunhead mm-hmm. so that they can escape. Yeah, and meanwhile back at the Chiron core, strange things are afoot. We see some kind of like weird creature busting out of the 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 lime green pool and there's a computer screen which presumably has just been showing this cyborg tech screensaver for 7 years or however long it's been. Suddenly it changes and it says irregular vibration detected, which is my favorite Beach Boys song. <laughs> I'm picking up irregular vibrations. And of course, that's because it's the biodroid Mach 2. We get the, the new biodroid reveal because I 
I think what has happened is that the biodroid somehow absorbed or merged with Babe. Yeah, and this, again, this is very Japanese cyberpunk, the idea that you could just sort of slip and fall into a puddle of cyberpunk and become cyberpunk. Um, Very good. So they end up getting, uh, the human characters end up getting some plot exposition from a computer screen, uh, and I think the computer screen is supposed to be the central computer of a reactivated gunhead. Uh, But we learn that the Chiron 5 went dormant after the robot war, in order to give humanity the time to develop what it would need in order to conquer the entire world. And what it needed was Tex-Mexium. So I think the idea is like, it's like, okay, I can't win right now. I'm just going to settle down and stop fighting and I'll wait for, I don't know, this hypernuclear facility in Texas or wherever to get enough Tex-Mexium that I can have it stolen and brought to me. And then I'll take over the world. Yeah, I mean, we kind of discussed this in recent episodes of uh, Stuff to Blow Your Mind this week uh, about AI. Like, if you're an immortal AI, time doesn't matter. Right. Uh, you can you could do things like this and be like, well, uh, let's just put pa- push pause on this war, and once technology is improved, uh, I'll steal it, and uh, then I will be in a better position to win. Now, eventually, the humans part ways because, uh, again, I, I was finding it hard to follow exactly what's going on here, but I think Nim and Eleven... Uh, the older sister, they go off on one mission to do something with the Chiron core. And then Brooklyn and Seven are there trying to build, trying to restore the gunhead and get it working. And of course, this movie is, uh, you know, like, like any good movie of this type, it's a good scrap fest. So great sets full of compelling shattered garbage that the characters are crawling over and picking through. Yeah, I, I no matter what was going on with the dialogue or the plot, I always bought the setting and the uh, and the props and the the various robots and robot effects uh, as Gunhead eventually be, becomes uh, able to talk and have long conversations with our hero. Uh, there's like one scene where Gunhead is is represented by just like one of these arms or tentacles of Gunhead, mm-hmm. and he's having a conversation with with it, and uh, it was a it was a pretty fun scene. I love the the practical effects. I love what a stand up guy Gunhead is. Once he finally starts talking, and we get to know him, Gunhead is so positive. He's such a good friend. I mean, it's 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 heartwarming. Yeah. I also like while they're doing the gunhead assembly, Brooklyn is still eating carrots. And I'm thinking, how does he still have carrots after all he's been through? Where where are these carrots coming from? (laughs) I mean, how would he survive this long without carrots? I mean, he (laughs) he must just have them secreted on his person. He's got them like duct taped to his leg and stuff underneath his clothing. Yeah, I guess Brooklyn has all kinds of means for getting carrots through customs. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, once the gunhead is rebuilt, it starts talking to Brooklyn and Seven, and it's this very positive presence in the movie. It's just so affirming. Uh, it really gives you, it really gives them confidence, and uh, and it's a great friend. But of course, this comes down to I, I think one of the the character conflicts in the movie, which is that Brooklyn is afraid of piloting things, but he must face his fears and pilot the gunhead. Now, when that happens, he starts piloting it, and. I don't even know how to describe all the different ways that the gunhead moves. Like the, the design of these robots is is beautiful practical effects work. All the models they must have built. Uh, I don't know ex- exactly what scale they were working, but the movie in a way is kind of murky. I mean, like it doesn't give you really like clean, clear looks at everything, but as, as much as you can see, it looks really good. The models are awesome. Yeah, the, the models look great. I think the problem and the, one of the reasons that I wasn't very invested in the big battles that take place is that 
for one thing, it's kind of just like two robot tanks exploding at each other and running into each other for what seems like forever. But then also the environment, the very environment here is just unreal. It's mm-hmm. like, like how, do I, how do I relate to this as a human being, uh, a world where tanks are moving up like vertically yeah. for, uh, for stories and stories and then battling each other in long hallways and like just industrial cathedral spaces. Yeah. So at this point in the movie, tank time has come. And a lot of what happens from here on out is just tank play. You know, there is uh, it's tank versus tank, mech versus mech. And we're seeing the different types of like, t- uh, you know, gunhead weapons or defenses versus Chiron 5 weapons or defenses. Yeah, it basically becomes tank exploitation yes. in the latter stages of this film. Uh, though, I, I mean, just several – a lot of the things about the gunhead are great. Like, I love how it doesn't – it's not purely wheel-powered or leg-powered. It has sort of a combination of legs and wheels, kind of like rolling mm-hmm. track legs. Sometimes it sort of walks like an enormous metal turkey with guns all over it. Other times it has tracks and rolls like a tank. Uh, yeah, so, so it has different modes, I guess, to deal with different terrain types. Yeah, and that, that's interesting. So I, yeah, big thumbs up to the gunhead. I like the gunhead. Uh, but anyway, what's going on with the humans at this point? I think there's, uh, I don't know. Again, it's it's not exactly the easiest to follow right here. But the bio droid, I think, is supposed to be returning the Texmexium to the Chiron core, but is also just injecting itself with Texmexium along the way, like it's using heroin. Mm-hmm. So it's taking it up to the core, but then like it stops to have a little taste. <laughs> well, it earned it. It earned it. There's also a lot of cute stuff with Brooklyn and Seven bonding during their gunhead quest throughout the facility at this point. Like, well, there there are some things where, like, Seven is trying to help and he's playing around underneath gunhead's feet. And I'm like, Seven, stop doing that. That is very dangerous. <laughs> uh, but other times, uh, there, there's, like, one part where Seven points a gun at Brooklyn a real gun and he makes a you know pew pew shooting sound and brooklyn warns him not to do this because in a callback it is bad luck yeah i i'm not sure that's the main problem with it but i don't know maybe there's like a dubbing translation issue i mean i could imagine like bad luck being another way to say that it's dangerous or something yeah i'm not sure i think the the scenes with the kids tended to be the scenes where i was cross-checking on wikipedia to see what the plot was was doing at that point yes yeah the i agree those were some of the hardest to understand yeah. Now there's now I've talked about how Gunhead is like really uh, really motivating and really confident and positive. There's a great part where Gunhead starts doing this extended baseball metaphor to Brooklyn oh, gosh, yes. about the Brooklyn Dodgers. He's talking about some baseball game where they were behind, but then they they fought through it. And I, th- I thought that was really funny. Um, there's a part where the Gunhead has to be refueled using. We find out that he can refuel with any uh, ethanol based something. You know, basically alcohol can refuel him. And what do you know? Here's that salvage whiskey that Captain Bancho was talking about. Yeah, if you look at the at images of that uh, that gunhead model kit that I referenced earlier, mm-hmm. uh, there is a whiskey cask attached to its leg. Beautiful. Uh, now, there's another thing that I didn't fully understand, but I enjoyed at least visually. There's some kind of double cross with the older sister with Eleven. At some point, light starts coming out of her mouth. I like this effect. Uh, but then she like locks up Sergeant Nim and her brother, and she's going to initiate control for the Chiron 5. I think she has some kind of computer implant controlling her behavior. Like she's a, she's a, a, double, a sleeper agent for the AI. Yes. 
And then we get a, this, uh, a big Gunhead versus Aerobot showdown. Uh, Aerobot is overpowered, but Gunhead has a strategy, and his strategy is to take out Aerobot's three triangle eyes. And eventually, Brooklyn and the Gunhead are uh, victorious. They, they destroy the Aerobot. Uh, meanwhile, somehow, Sergeant Nim stops Eleven from doing something with the Tex-Mexium vial. I'm not sure what it was, but she was trying to do something bad in the Chiron 5 core. And Nim, she gets in there and stops it from happening. And then the Biodroid is in the mix here. And uh, I, I couldn't exactly follow what's going on. But at some point, the biodroid like vaporizes itself. I don't know if she has a. It's like the babe part of the 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 babe part that is now absorbed into the biodroid has a crisis of con- conscience when it sees Brooklyn and the kids there and and Sergeant Nim and it's like, no, what have I become? And then just like turns to light. Yeah, yeah, uh, something that that probably could have used more fleshing out if yeah. we were to really buy it, but it kind of comes out of left field here, but yeah. but fair enough. But anyway, you get a standard escape sequence. Eleven is somehow cured of her Chiron glowing mouth. I, I don't know what happens to fix that, but now it seems like she's okay. And the four humans all scramble to escape to the Marianne and they fly away. Oh, and then the best thing of all with the ending is as they're flying away, they get a message on the computer screen in the plane. They say, Gunhead has sent a message to us. In fact, they thought he was destroyed Destroyed, but he's alive back on the island. And uh, he says the Gunhead Battalion has completed its mission. And uh, and then we get a we get a very charming carrot chomp from Brooklyn right at the end. <laughs> and that is Gunhead. Um, it's a like I say, I think a great film to put on in the background. Um, given how wonderful the visuals are, it's, it's it was not that surprising to learn that Canadian electro-industrial band Frontline Assembly used, with permission, gunhead footage as the basis for their 1992 music video Mind Phaser. And they didn't just use the film's excellent footage, they actually uh, shot themselves in costumes that looked like they belonged in gunhead and inserted themselves into the world. So look that up, Mind Phaser, if you want to see just flashes of this film. Oh, interesting. Uh, I hope I hope one of them became a biodroid. I think they all become biodroids. <laughs> oh, nice! It's kind of the uh, electro-industrial dream, right? Yeah, I love the biodroid. I love it. Yeah, yeah, the biodroid is good, um, and I think the biodroid is ultimately more relatable because it is humanoid. Uh, the the tank. Ooh, I mean, I I love sci-fi tanks. I, you know, I, I I love movies with sci-fi tanks in them. I build sci-fi tanks sometimes, but. It was just, I was kind of hard to get behind these admittedly cool sci-fi tanks in this film. And I was thinking about this. I was trying to think, well, why is that? And then I had to ask myself, well, what tank movies do I actually like? And I think the, for me, the best tank-heavy movie I can think of is Kelly's Heroes. Hmm. I've never seen it. Oh, it's good. It, it's, uh, you know, World War II, kind of a heisty situation, hmm. uh, you know, rogue characters, heavily involves tanks. The tanks are important to the plot. But not more important than the people, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I guess it kind of comes down to sort of the reality of tank warfare, too. Like tanks cannot exist on their own. Tanks need uh, support from uh, from from human beings as well, both inside and out. And that can be said for a, the plot of a film as well, because uh, when I started looking at lists of tank movies, granted, there were many that I had not seen, but there were <laughs> others where I'm like, oh. That that was no good. I did not like that. <laughs> yep, it had a sci-fi tank, but it wasn't that good. The, the sci-fi tanks are best 
in my opinion, when they're they're utilized within the film. Like they show up in a couple of scenes, but they're not the whole deal. Yeah, I, I like the uh, I like the digital tanks in Tron. Those were good tanks. Yeah, um, I think another thing about like mech combat, and in this case, mech tank combat, is that like I say, when they were battling each other, they were just kind of exploding at each other. Yeah, robot jocks, which granted is more about more humanoid robots. In those battles, like everything they did mattered, like they were setting up particular moves as being important and there was discussion about what they were. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, we saw less of that in this for sure. I'd say the color palettes of Robot Jocks versus Gunhead are entirely opposite. Uh, Robot Jocks is is dominated by bright light colors and takes place in broad daylight where you get a very clear picture of exactly what you're looking at to an almost comical extent. Whereas Gunhead is very, it's more, you know, the dark gritty cyberpunk thing where everything in the movie looks kind of like muddy and grimy and dimly lit. So you never get a really clear look at anything. Yeah. But it's still, it's, it's beautiful in its own way. Like I, I absolutely love the look of the film. All right, you're probably wondering, well, where can I see Gunhead? <laughs> well, uh, it looks like it has streamed recently on Prime, but it's not currently available to us anyway at this point on Prime. Uh, there's a DVD that is available from Section 23 Films in the United States, and uh, that's how we watched it. We actually uh, rented it from Videodrome, our local video store in Atlanta, videodrome.tv. Uh, so that's how we got to see it. But I believe there's also a copy of this on archive.org as well. For future historians to refer to. Yeah. But of course, stuff comes and goes on streaming platforms. For instance, mm-hmm. when we reviewed uh, Robot Jocks, it was not available on Amazon Prime. Now it's on Amazon Prime as of this recording. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it, just be patient. Sometimes in these films pop back up. Uh, we were told when we reviewed Robot Jocks by several listeners that it was quite uh, coincidentally available on a platform called Tubi. Tubi, yes, T-U-B-I, yes. <laughs> Uh, if you haven't listened to our Robot Jacks episode, go listen to that. You'll understand the joke. All right. We're going to go ahead and close it out here. But obviously, we'd love to hear from everybody out there, people who saw this film back in the day, people who saw it because we mentioned it on the show. Uh, we'd love to hear from anyone out there who's more versed in, say, Japanese cyberpunk, Japanese um, science fiction in general. What are your thoughts on this film and its place in Japanese cinema? What are your thoughts on tank movies? Do you have a favorite example of tank exploitation? If so, let us know. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 